What's up, everyone, and welcome to the Renewable Energy Smart Pod. I'm your host, Sean McMahon, and my guest today is Rob Gramlich, the founder and president of Grid Strategies. Virtually every episode of this podcast is focused on technologies and trends that are playing a role in the energy transition. But all the wind turbines and solar panels in the world can't do much if there's no way to first connect them to the grid and then get that renewable energy moving to where it needs to go. Rob is a self-described grid geek, so he's here to dive into all the challenges the U.S. grid is facing and some of the potential solutions. Plus, few people know more about what is in the current infrastructure bills circulating around Capitol Hill than Rob. So he's going to outline the most essential elements of those proposals. What are the nice-to-haves and what are the need-to-haves? After my conversation with Rob wraps up, be sure to stick around for the pod brief segment of the show. With COP26 just around the corner, most of the headlines are about the role countries like the US, UK, and China will play in Glasgow. But it's important to remember that the Conference of the Parties is a conference of nations large and small. So today's pod brief highlights progress being made on the energy front in some key countries in Africa. And remember, if you want your renewables news in email format as well as podcast, head on over to smartbrief.com and sign up for the Renewable Energy Smart Brief. And as always, you can follow this show on Twitter, where our handle is at RenewablesPod. Before I kick off my conversation with Rob, here's a quick word from the exclusive sponsor of today's episode, Emerson. Emerson has a deep legacy of helping our customers in the world's most essential industries solve the most complex challenges of modern life. Our breakthrough software and technologies drive innovation that makes the world healthier, safer, smarter, and more sustainable. Emerson, consider it solved. Thank you, everyone, for joining me today. My guest is Rob Gramlich, the founder and president of Grid Strategies. How are you doing today, Rob? Good, Sean. How are you? Great. Great. Before we get into the conversation, we're going to do a deep dive today on, on the transmission in the U.S. and the grid. Uh, why don't you tell our listeners a little bit about your background? I mean, you're kind of the, the grid guru, if you don't mind me calling you that. I've been doing it for long enough. I should be by now. It's been like 30 years since college when I was looking at... Uh, environmental issues with uh, the power system. And it was acid rain back then, but then it became climate and the grid became was uh, a key part of it. So I went to FERC for eight years, worked for the chairman for a while and uh, worked for the Wind Association for 12 years. And five years ago about, I started Grid Strategies and I've been focusing on grid policy, economics. We have some uh, engineering capability at the firm here. And we uh, do a lot of work with uh, a couple of groups, including Americans for a Clean Energy Grid and the Watt Coalition, which is about advanced transmission technology. Well, it sounds like you're, you're well-versed, like you said, a, a few decades doing this. So you know what you're talking about. So let's get right into it. What are the biggest issues facing the, the U.S. grid right now? Yeah, we really need to move power around geographically. That's a, that's a big deal. Most people kind of get that we need to move it sort of over time too, and storage helps with that. Uh, but we also need to move it over space. And so we have a couple ways to do that. One is de delivering more over existing wires. We can talk about how the, some technologies that do that. But really, we have limited capacity and we have to expand the capacity of the grid. And there's no way to do that uh, other than new transmission Capacity could be over existing rights of way, either electricity line rights of way or rail, highway, et cetera, and sometimes over uh, private land. 
But that's kind of what we need to do for a couple of reasons that uh, everybody cares about. Um, everybody cares about resilience. And we've seen situations where, you know, severe weather takes out generation of all types uh, for one, you know, uh, threat or another. And you can move power across from neighboring regions to cover the shortfall with uh, transmission. And then completely separate, most people care a lot about clean energy, either for climate reasons or other reasons. And the way to operate a high renewable penetration grid is, again, by moving the power from, you know, where the wind is blowing to where it isn't or where the solar, you know, is in a time zone where it's um, shining and producing to where it's not or where it's sunny and to a place where it's cloudy. So you end up moving the power around geographically a lot with a high renewable energy grid. All right. And so that's kind of where all this build out that we're hearing about, you know, a lot of listeners of this podcast are in, are in the loop on renewables. And so we're building, you know, solar farms, wind farms everywhere. But a lot of times those resources aren't where people live. Right. So so what's being done either at the state level, regional, federal level to kind of move that transmission along? Yeah, that's right. And if you're in the wind or solar uh, or storage, any development business, you know, what you see is you, you go to try to interconnect. Two years later, they tell you, actually, it's going to cost you 30 million bucks or 80 million bucks to put your project there. And, you know, you had no idea uh, if it was going to be 1 million or 100 million and get this kind of, you know, crapshoot response. And it could be really high. And, and if it's high, you probably drop out of the interconnection queue. So just about everybody I know in the uh, renewable generation business is extremely frustrated right now with interconnection and transmission. And, and of course, the real long-term solution there is to alleviate the, the capacity constraints by building the whole system out to where we know the renewables are so we can follow these uh, renewable energy or generation zone approaches like uh, they did in Texas or in uh, MISO in the Midwest. You kind of identify the resource areas. So the, the number one thing we need to do is proactively plan for the future resource mix. Uh, there's actually, you know, a lot of information about what type of generation and, and where it's going to be that planners can incorporate. The sad fact is it's not happening right now. Planners are not actually planning for that future resource mix. So that's something that the Federal Energy Regulatory Commission has identified as a problem and Congress has identified and the administration, the Biden administration. So there's a lot happening in, in Washington on those fronts to try to plan for the future mix. So what else can be done to, you know, that interconnection fee you mentioned, anywhere from like one to a hundred million dollars, it sounds like a surprise game that nobody really wants to play. So what can be done, you know, either at FERC, you mentioned you spent a chunk of your career working for the Federal Energy Regulatory Commission. What's FERC doing to try and maybe take some of the mystery out of that number, that dollar figure? Or like you said, the biggest problem is just kind of building out more transmission lines. So what's being done at the federal level at FERC or, you know, regional players or state level? Yeah, there are regional planners around the country that to varying degrees are now proactively building out for the resource mix and taking that into account. Um, California, their grid operator works with the state on uh, what the resource you know, policies are that whatever was decided in Sacramento, then they kind of put into the plan and they, they're working on that. New York is doing the same in the Midwest. MISO is trying to do the same. So those regional planners are now, I think, turning things around and doing more forward-looking planning. But this is all under the jurisdiction of the Federal Energy Regulatory Commission in Washington. And I think as FERC looks across all 11 of these planning authorities around the country, what they see is 
even though some people are starting some good work, it's really not been happening. Like the most recently approved plans in almost all cases have none of this forward-looking planning incorporated. So you're telling me they're doing all this planning without any forward-looking aspect to it? It doesn't really sound like planning to me. (laughs) Exactly. Well, uh, that's exactly what we're saying is it's hard to even call it planning. All they're doing is, you know, complying with, you know, this year or next year's uh, reliability rules and, you know, interconnecting the next generation that's in that interconnection queue. It's it's really more the exception than the rule to actually forward, you know, do a forward-looking 10, 20-year actual plan where they take the future mix into account. I, I think most people assume that that's what transmission planners do, but in fact, it's not happening. Well, the simple question is, why not? Is it lobbying? Is it policies aren't strong enough or uh, all of the above or what? You know, this is a an interesting industry with interesting incentives, very unusual incentives because it's, you know, they came out of natural monopoly utility, you know, kind of a, a legacy of that that history with some state regulation, some federal regulation. So the incentives are pretty messed up and they generally don't align with sort of what's in the whole regional interest. Plus, you know, I think there's a natural, it's almost human nature for companies not to give up control to regional authorities. If they can do their own system, they're much more comfortable with that. But of course, that leaves all the you know beneficial, reliable, and efficient opportunities on the table. So there's a variety of issues going on there. Uh, FERC has been trying literally for my entire career. I was looking back at there's a 1993 regional transmission group policy statement where they've been pushing in this direction. But uh, some of the things have worked a little, most of them haven't worked. And FERC, I think really now has the opportunity after some court decisions over the last five to 10 years that have, uh, if anything, clarified and strengthened the agency's authority to really try to finally make planning work. So I think they can kind of take that strong authority, you know, take the evidence of what's happening and say, all right, this this isn't happening. Here's what needs to happen. And they can put out a nationwide rule. And it looks to me like this is Chairman Richard Glick's top priority. And they put out this extensive sort of inquiry asking the industry a bunch of questions a couple months ago. And all the comments are back in tens of thousands of pages, it looks like. Some poor soul at Fer- on FERC staff has to do what I used to do <laughs> early in my career, read all this stuff. But yeah, so now they can kind of put together, I think, a, a proposed rulemaking and then a rulemaking and fix a lot of it. Yeah, I talked to Chairman Glick about some of this uh, on a previous episode, and it definitely sounds like it's one of his priorities. So let's talk about the carrot and the stick then, right? So we've had some crises that have happened. You know, Texas, seems like every other hurricane that comes through, the Gulf just kind of dismantles all the power in the region. A lot of folks are wondering why that keeps happening. And in Texas, I, th- I think uh, I truly think a lot of Americans had no idea that Texas was on its own grid, ERCOT. And, and suddenly now they're finding that, you know, they found that out the hard way. So in the aftermath of that, we read about how after the last kind of power crisis in Texas, there was all these kind of suggested fixes, you know, winterization and things like that, but it just didn't happen. So is FERC in a position now where they're going to be able to, you know, mandate that and, you know, with a, a proverbial stick on the back end if companies don't? Yes, I, I think they have to. And I think NERC, the reliability authority, has to act. Uh, I mean, if many of the recommendations were previously stated 10 years prior and they didn't get implemented, then you know nobody, nobody can just sit there and casually recommend things. Uh, I think they have to act. So winterization, 
it seems to be pretty widely recognized. You mentioned the ERCOT separate grid, the Texas uh, grid being separate. I think uh, that's definitely going to be reviewed. You know, probably Texans need to need to lead that. But you know, if they don't act, I wonder whether some of these uh, standards that exist in Europe, where there's a minimum amount of interconnection capacity between regions, uh, you know, might be brought over here. Uh, that certainly incre- would increase reliability. So that's another opportunity. Uh, but of course, the whole Texas question, I don't want to say that, you know, transmission's the only issue. It certainly uh, could help a lot for future instances, but there was a lot of other things going on there. And I, I had no idea personally just how vulnerable the whole gas system was all the way upstream uh, in Texas and how much of that is unique to Texas versus uh, an issue elsewhere is not totally clear yet. You touched on kind of if Texas were able to pull power from other regions in a crisis like that, it'd be all right. So looking outside of Texas, are there other regions that are kind of have that vulnerability where they have interconnection, but maybe perhaps not enough? Or, you know, how does that shape up across the rest of the country? Yeah, I, I, I think a lot of regions have, have uh, some, but not enough. And I think that what they need to do is, is measure it and uh, model these scenarios, these sort of reasonably possible but extreme weather situations you know, California, even a state, you know, California is not a state of climate deniers, right? Uh, especially in their government. But on the other hand, they weren't really modeling a whole west-wide heat wave when they were doing their transmission planning and analysis. And so obviously they should, and I'm sure in the future they will, but other regions need to do the same thing and take these situations into account. We get polar vortex incidents in the central region and the east especially the Northeast and Mid-Atlantic where I live. And, and uh, you know, every time that happens, we end up delivering, you know, 10 gigawatts, so a whole lot of power from the neighboring region, you know, and as much basically as capacity as there is. But, you know, it'd be nice to have some more. So that's the type of planning they need to do. Getting back to your comments earlier about how we kind of just need to build out more transmission lines. No real way around it if we're going to have all these, you know, either renewable or other sources, it's got to be there. So but what about, you know, there's a lot of talk about kind of rooftop solar, distributed energy uh, resources. You know, obviously that's kind of more of, for the most part, you know, generating the power right where it's needed or at least close by. What kind of percentage of the pie do you think that could alleviate in terms of the, the need for transmission? You know, not even needing the big lines going miles and miles, just having it right there on your roof. Well, there's a lot of advantages, as you say, having it local and having it uh, on on site. Now, very little of the on-site generation or renewable energy uh, is capable of islanding from the grid. Like it's all built to basically be part of the grid. So if the grid goes down, it goes down. That's the case with my, you know, rooftop solar right now. It doesn't help me in a, in a power outage. But there are more and more opportunities for that going forward. You know, it's it's expensive. So I, I think, you know, some customers will be able to do it and not not all. But uh, you know, I'd love to see, I'd love to have one of those Ford F-150 Lightnings, you know, electric car with a huge battery sitting in my driveway that could, you know, last at least a couple of days. That's an opportunity. We all need to have energy efficient homes or at least some minimum level of energy efficiency so that, you know, whatever heat or cold air you have in your house, you can keep for more than a couple hours and hopefully last you a day or two. That's, that's important for sort of human uh, health and safety. Businesses like hospitals and police stations, et cetera, tend to have their backup generation sort of all already worked out. But that's that's certainly going to be something 
you need to plan for if you have a you know need for high reliability uh, because any number of things can affect the you know grid power. But you know at the end of the day, I think what serves most people for reliability on an affordable basis is being part of the interconnected network. And if you build the network right, then the nice thing about networks is if one piece of the network goes down, you don't bring the whole thing down. You, you have a network and power can flow across other paths. So we build up a strong network with power flowing across uh, various directions. And, you know, that keeps us all stronger. That I think serves the most people for the least money uh, in, in the future. So I don't view it as distributed versus utility scale renewable. I, I think they'll both be a big part of the mix. Is there any kind of percentage wise you think would, you know, 10 years from now, 15 years from now, what percentage is, is distributed kind of accounting for? Are we talking single digits, you know, 20%? Where are we at? You know, there's, there's a trade-off. I mean, you know, community solar, I think is going to keep going where there's, you get a little bit of the efficiencies of scale. There's a lot of economies of scale, both in the generation and the transmission, right? So, I mean, the costs of putting up panels on individual rooftops is, uh, is very high. Moreover, I mean, you just look at the total capacity of, you know, most cities or towns, you know, the, the number of rooftops that face the right direction at the right angle don't anywhere near cover the the load uh, of those areas. So, you know, again, I think what opportunities exist will be exploited and pursued, but it's, you know, that alone isn't going to cover it. All right. Now let's shift our focus offshore, right? The Biden administration has a, a lot of big, big plans for offshore wind. Are there any connection issues you see for that, you know, when it comes ashore, either in the Northeast or I guess mid-Atlantic or perhaps long-term, maybe California? Yes, absolutely. So two separate and related issues. One is the limited interconnection points on on land. Uh, There just aren't that many places you can have the the transmission line from offshore land. And so what that means is you better use those interconnection points very efficiently. So if, you know, if the community is going to tolerate one, you know, line onto shore to some substation, let's build that at the right scale. So you maximize the delivery capacity with that, build it once. That's one. The other issue, well, there's, I guess, sort of three issues. The other is the, uh, the second one is the, the land-based grid. We call it the dry grid. Uh, if you look at the Northeast, for example, there's not very strong transmission capacity right along the coast. Like you got to go pretty far in New Jersey to actually get to the main grid. So you got to somehow build up the main grid and get access to the main grid from the shore. And then the third is the actual offshore network called the wet grid. And it's just like transmission issues always are. There, there are major economies of scale. If you build it bigger for multiple users, uh, you end up you know, saving a lot of money in the long run. So we got to figure out a way to do that and not do this just kind of development project by development project, but as a more of an integrated grid. So this calls for states working together, the regional transmission planners working together, the developers working together. And I think the the Biden administration, which is very interested in transmission, very interested in deploying clean energy, I think there's a big role for them to to uh, help lead uh, in the Northeast. And then, um, you know, in California, Californians can probably figure out how to make it work for themselves. But they they definitely have all these same issues, wet and dry grid issues to uh, to work on. They've got a good offshore resource and uh, up in the Pacific Northwest, they've got some offshore wind opportunities. So, yes, uh, there's going to be a lot of offshore wind and transmission work to do. What about down in the Gulf? I know the administration just yesterday, I think it was, 
released kind of plans for, I think it's seven projects you know, off the coast in various locations of the U.S., and the Gulf was one of them. So what does that transmission look like coming in? I'm hearing about that more. That's a little bit more of a newer entry into the into the space. I don't know exactly what grid they're connecting into, but there could be opportunities there to kind of connect some grids and provide some more resilience, you know, maybe uh, between the region. It might be one more way you could connect the Texas grid with the Southeast grid, for example. Yeah, I don't know, know what those uh, projects are planning to do about their uh, their transmission. Yeah, and I just I have I have concerns about hurricanes, uh, both mid Atlantic and I guess in the Gulf, uh, and what that what that means for all those wind resources out there when a big Category Five comes rolling in. But people smarter than me are are trying to solve for that. We're going to take a quick thirty second break, but when we come back, Rob will delve into the huge infrastructure proposals that are being discussed on Capitol Hill. As a global innovator, Emerson has a deep legacy of helping our customers in the world's most essential industries solve the most complex challenges of modern life. Powered by a community of problem solvers with industry-leading expertise, we deliver sustainable grid solutions that increase efficiency, reduce emissions, and conserve resources. Our breakthrough software and technologies seamlessly integrate renewable and distributed energy resources into the power network for a more reliable and stable electric grid. We drive innovation that makes the world healthier, safer, smarter, and more sustainable. Emerson, consider it solved. And now, back to my conversation with Rob Gramlich from Grid Strategies. So your career, you mentioned you spent years and years Somewhere in some way, shape, and form touching the policy aspects here in the United States. So I'd like to pivot right now to what's going on on Capitol Hill with the infrastructure bill that's been proposed. Walk our listeners through it. I think few people know that the text of that bill and what's you know on the table better than you do. So what's in the current infrastructure bill right now? Yeah, there are some important provisions for for the grid in um, in both of those bills. And remember, there's the bipartisan Senate bill, and then there's the Build Back Better bill in the House, which, you know, is expected to pass on a partisan basis through the reconciliation process. Some people call it the reconciliation bill. The thing about reconciliation process is you can put any number of dollars, taxes or spending into that, but you can't really change policies. So the bipartisan Senate bill is the place where policies can be changed. So there's some provisions related to uh, transmission siting and permitting in the policy bill and the Senate bill. And there's a new provision that I like called a, an anchor tenant transmission bill where the government can take capacity reservations on transmission lines and partner with developers of transmission, which could be helpful because at least this Department of Energy under Secretary Granholm seems interested in deploying transmission and helping on that. There's some there's a little bit of loan money in that bill. And then there's more dollars, again, in the in the reconciliation bill. And there's loan money, there's grant money, there's uh, $8 billion for loans and grants for regionally significant transmission. Then there's also a tax credit. And everybody in the renewable energy business is aware of uh, how well tax credits work. They have been very effective over the years. Uh, I mean, people kind of love them and hate them, but they, they do deploy a lot of energy. And they could similarly deploy storage and transmission. So there's new tax credits in there, in addition to wind and solar credits, that would deploy regionally significant transmission. I think that would help a lot. We did a report about 22 projects ready to go around the country. These are 
big kind of long transmission projects, sometimes crossing multiple states, and they provide a lot of value. But a lot of that value is sort of public value and not private value. It's kind of transmissions of public good, as we say. So that's the argument we've made in Congress is that, look, these are really more like interstate highways and the transmission owners around the country don't have a way to recover these costs. So some federal help to support these interstate highway type lines that are, you know, in the national interest for resilience reasons and climate reasons would sure help a lot. And so it's in there right now uh, as we as we sit here in mid-October, you know, fingers crossed uh, it stays in. Things look good right now. It's just that the overall agreement isn't there yet, right, on uh, whether to pass these bills or what size they should be. Yeah, and I guess things are changing pretty quickly on Capitol Hill, so we should let our listeners know that we're recording this on uh, Thursday, October 14th. So if everything changes tomorrow, then you know we couldn't see that far into the future. What do you see as some of the things in, in the bills that are, that are must-haves, right, that really need to happen? Because it seems like there's a lot of talk about cutting this or reducing that in terms of programs. Are there two or three, maybe four things that you just feel got to be there? Well, as a grid geek, I focus on the transmission tax credit and the loans and grants for for transmission. Uh, From a clean energy standpoint, I think people are very interested in the tax credits that that have uh, not only a longer term than we're used to in the past, but uh, a direct pay option so you don't have to use tax equity that's getting into the tax wonk world, but that's an important detail on that one. Um, And then there's a lot of, obviously, a lot of public discussion and debate about the Clean Energy Performance Program, which is the attempt to try to take a uh, clean energy standard and make it a a dollars and cents type of provision to fit in the reconciliation process. You know, we don't know the answer of whether the uh, parliamentarian is going to rule that uh, fair game or not. This gets into Senate procedure, but uh, that could certainly send a strong signal. Uh, And there's various other clean energy policies in there outside of uh, renewable energy and transmission items that I don't follow as closely, but I know the administration's trying to package all these up in a way that they can go to, you know, the UN conference in Glasgow and say they've, you know, US is back on track with policies, you know, to meet its objectives, you know, whether they get the bill done in time, there's a lot of skepticism and in Washington. But still, uh, whenever it gets done, if it gets done, the United States will definitely have a stronger story to tell internationally to try to get better, stronger action from other countries. All right. Is there anything that's, you know, we spent the last few minutes talking about everything that's in the bills, right? So is there anything that's not in those bills that you think should be or you wish there was? Well, I took enough economics to say we, we've got to be looking at carbon tax. Uh, I almost feel like to retain your your economics degree credential, you, you have to you have to start with we should have carbon pricing, and then and then it's okay to talk about the second or third best opportunities. But you know, it, it would just be so efficient uh, and avoid you know some of the problems as you get higher and higher clean energy penetration. You know the the warts of other policies become more noticeable. So I, I would certainly be among those who would love to see that. All righty. If you're a gambling man, and maybe you are, I don't know. What do you bet that the bills in some shape or form actually get passed? Or you think we're kind of with Biden administration standing with empty handed going to Glasgow? Well, I wish I was more optimistic about getting it done in the month of October before Glasgow. But I've been around Washington long enough to know that a lot of legislation gets passed right around Christmas. 
in terms of like drop dead dates, there aren't many that are more drop dead than, you know, all the members who celebrate Christmas trying to get home <laughs> on that day. So, um, you know, that's, uh, that's definitely like a marker. And I, I think there's, uh, I'm optimistic that something will pass and that something will pass by the end of the year. I'd put that around 80%. All righty. And now pulling back from the legislation and just kind of looking at the overall market, I like to ask guests if they have any bold predictions about, you know, whatever area of expertise they have. So what are your bold predictions perhaps about how the, you know, how the grid looks and ah, we'll call it, things take time to build. So we'll call it 10, 15 years. Yeah, I think we'll have a uh, nationally connected transmission system with much more uh, very long distance lines, probably high voltage DC lines connecting the, the three grids of the country and stronger interregional capacity than we do today. You know, maybe the interregional capacity doubles roughly from what it is today. It's hard to measure that exactly, but, um, you know, conceptually doubling that interregional capacity from where we have today. I think we need it. I think I just see a trends of everybody coming on board and utilities and others in the business saying, wait a minute, if we're going to do this, we really need to strengthen that interregional capacity. So I'm hopeful people will keep coming around and we'll put policies in place and just voluntary agreements in place in each region to get that done. I want to step back for a second because we spent this first you know half hour or so talking about some pretty intricate policy things and, and stuff that folks who are outside the energy sector might not really know or how it works and all that stuff. So how do you explain to folks? Now, you go to a dinner party or something like that, and you're sitting across from some people who just are totally new to this whole conversation. What are some of the things that either questions they ask you because they know your background or things that you try to share with folks just to kind of you know, give them the, uh, the grid or transmission 101 course, if you will, over some appetizers and, and entrees? Yeah, they uh, they usually don't want to ask me because they know I'll <laughs> send everybody home. Maybe they, they ask me at the end of the party, like, "All right, let's like, let Rob talk, and then we can all all head out of here." Rob's our closer. Is that what it is? <laughs> yeah, <that's right. laughs> no, like you know, I try to just make it real for people. Like you know, it's kind of some of these ideas. Like you know, the wind is always blowing somewhere. You know, that's sort of a reality. Like you know, if you go four hundred miles away from a, a typical wind farm, the wind is either, you know, blowing or not blowing. It's basically not correlated with the, the first one. And so you, you end up moving the power around and we've had successes. We've done sort of transmission build out in the past, like take the upper Midwest. We delivered a lot of wind out of the upper Midwest into Chicago and points East. You know, some of those lines are over highways. If you drive along uh, from Madison to La Crosse, Wisconsin, it's along the highway. So, you know, previously disturbed land brownfield, you could say. And the thing about transmission is, you know, it's bi-directional and it gives you all these options for reliability and for clean energy. So those same lines that were delivered to deliver wind to Chicago and points east were the lines that kept the lights on in the upper Midwest during winter storm Uri. Power was flowing the other direction. So we need, you know, if we expand the capacity, we'll keep the lights on and we'll get clean energy integrated and we need to do it. And a lot of it can be done Without new rights of way and corridors, some will require that. But uh, there are a lot of ways to do this that um, you know meet with social social objectives and keeps rates 
low, the bigger that you build transmission, the lower per delivered megawatt it is. So you do it at the right scale and ratepayers are better off. So there's a lot of wins and wins, you know, here if we kind of work together on these plans. The the challenge is there's so many stakeholders uh, with so many interests across so many geographies that it's hard to put it all together. But shows like yours, Sean, get everybody rowing in the same direction and, and hopefully we can do that. Uh, well, I appreciate that. That's what we're trying to do is kind of bring everybody into the conversation. Back to the conversation. I'm going to flip that dinner party question uh, on its head. Say you're at the same table and everyone around you is the smartest, you know, half dozen or eight or so folks that you know who live and breathe this stuff. What is that conversation like? What are you all talking about? I mean, perhaps off the record, you know, your hopes and dreams. Like what, what are the smartest people that know a lot about this stuff talking about? They're probably talking about... Uh technologies and business models. On technologies, there's some intriguing new technologies. You know, high voltage DC technology with what they call voltage source converters provide a lot of reliability benefit. You know, you can black start, uh, which means restart a, a grid from, from nothing. With uh, some of these facilities, you can, you know, you, you have reactive power and these uh, ancillary services. You have all these basically reliability services that come out of these new technologies that is really useful. Some of these technologies, like certain high voltage DC lines can be built underground. Uh, They might be talking about superconductors, which cool the line and allow more delivery. They might be talking about advanced conductors that are stronger so they can withstand storms better and they can deliver more over existing corridors. Uh, or grid enhancing technologies, which are these technologies that deliver more over the existing system. So there's a lot of that going on that everybody's trying to keep up with because it's happening so fast. And it's a lot of these things are being deployed uh, like gangbusters in other countries. And we need to figure out better ways to deploy them here. So that's one is technology. Another one is business models. This one, honestly, is just a really hard one because there's a lot of utilities that want to build. Uh, this transmission, but there's also a lot of third-party developers, we call them merchant developers, who want a more competitive approach and have a shot at it. And it's it's tough because, you know, the utilities kind of have the rights of way and they have the local relationships and they can get a lot of stuff done. And our regulatory structure actually works pretty well to, you know, for them to go ahead and build infrastructure. But, you know, how do you say no to the the competitive developers when they're willing to put their independent private capital at risk for it. So that's just something that's not been settled really in the U.S. transmission system. And I would love for it to just be settled so we know how to go ahead and get it done. Okay. And you mentioned burying the the lines in terms of, you know, transmission lines. How realistic is that for existing lines? I mean, I'm a native Californian. I know a lot of fires down there are sparked by power lines and things like that. And people talk about burying the lines. It just seems like a pretty, uh, let's just call it expensive endeavor. Is that real or is that a pipe dream? Yeah, it's limited. It's real, but limited. High voltage DC is more undergroundable, if I can make a new word. (laughs) I like that. (laughs) Than AC lines, just because of the sort of the physics of how it's cooled and all that. So, you know, I don't know if it's, you know, 1.5x more costly for HVDC, but you know, something like that. Whereas AC, it's like 10x, 10 times more costly to underground it. So it's just hard to see a lot of widespread undergrounding. PG&E, I don't know if you're in Northern California, but, you know, they put out an estimate of $40 billion to underground their system. And I don't know if that's accurate or not, but 
obviously that's sticker shock for everybody. Well, wait a minute. That's, you know, that's just seems way beyond what's realistic. So, um, there's certainly a lot of other things that can be done. I mean, just keeping up with the maintenance, obviously, is what every you know, utility needs to be doing. They shouldn't have old rusty wires sparking wildfires. So that's certainly the lowest hanging fruit. Um, and selective undergrounding in certain areas probably will be used. But it again, it is a big price delta. So it's hard to see, hard to see widespread undergrounding of AC lines. Gotcha. Is there anything else? topics out there kind of free conversation here to things you think listeners should know about like i said either people who work in the industry sector and know this well or people who don't what message would you share with those folks i would encourage people to get into it It, you know there is a lot happening there's going to be a tremendous amount of work it's policy work it's legal work it's engineering work it's economic analysis it's um, communications work so any and all of these uh, capabilities that normally you know apply in business and policy are are going to be needed. Uh, all you need to do is overcome your fear of transmission, like I did. I still feel like I'm. I, uh, I don't really know <laughs> how transmission works. You can get a lot done just getting involved. That's one. The other thing is just to emphasize. You asked about Congress and policy. I really think this is the biggest year ever for transmission policy, and this moment may not come back again for the, at least for the foreseeable future. So I, I really hope they get these bills done personally and they could be quite significant if they do pass okay rob i really appreciate your time i learned a lot and i think our listeners did too so thank you very much great john great to be with you and now it's time for the pod brief segment of today's show many of the headlines in the lead up to cop 26 in glasgow inevitably focus on big players like the us uk eu and china but sometimes it's important to keep your eye on what's going on in countries outside the g20 With that in mind, I want to point you to a couple news items that are worth a read. As always, I'm providing links to these stories in today's show notes. First up, over at The Conversation, Benjamin Atiyah and Morgan Bazillion from the Payne Institute wrote a piece about why banning financing for fossil fuel projects in Africa should not, I repeat, should not be a priority at COP26. They make a compelling case based on many factors, including the fact that overall greenhouse gas emissions from all of Africa pale in comparison to big emitters like the U.S. and China. Renewables already account for more than 50% of power generation in places like Kenya, Ethiopia, and Uganda, so maybe policymakers gathered in Glasgow should focus more on reining in the big emitters and less on limiting the ways Africa chooses to develop its energy infrastructure. Speaking of African countries that are making great progress in the build-out of renewables, President Hage Gengob of Namibia recently penned an op-ed for the World Economic Forum that outlines the ways his country plans to make renewable energy a key component of its economy. Now, I was lucky enough to spend some time in Namibia back in 2018, and I got an up-close look at the infrastructure in places like the port city of Walvis Bay. It is impressive. And with Namibia's abundant solar resources, it's pretty easy to see why the country is well-positioned to become a major player in the global green hydrogen market. Well, that's our show for today. Once again, I'd like to thank the exclusive sponsor of today's episode, Emerson. If you like this podcast, please share it with your friends and colleagues. And be sure to follow us on Apple, Google, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. You can also follow us on Twitter, where our handle is at RenewablesPod. And if you'd like a daily dose of renewable news delivered to your inbox, head to smartbrief.com and sign up for the Renewable Energy Smart Brief. 
The Renewable Energy Smart Pod is a production of SmartBrief, a future company. Mm-hmm.